Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Real talk. This is probably going to be one of those not safe for work or the car with kids episodes. Uh, that might be a given for a series about birth, which I will remind you was a listener request. So you brought this on yourselves. So it's probably no surprise to anyone that childbirth is a messy, bloody beautiful physiological process, but that doesn't mean your six-year-old or coworker want to hear about it, especially if you're listening during lunch, especially if your coworker is your six-year-old. So consider yourself warned, and also, since this is going to be a pretty gross episode, I'm not going to bleep our f***s or shits after this intro, because this is f***ing gross, and you're already down the rabbit hole, my friends. I am making this episode explicit, baby. Enjoy. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Symphysiotomy. Probably not a word you've heard before. And if you have, I'm sorry? Symphysiotomy is an obstetric procedure in which a person's pubic symphysis cartilage is cut to widen the pelvis for childbirth. Yes, this is gross. I know. For most of the 19th century, symphysiotomy was a new solution to difficult births and, to some doctors, preferable to cesarean sections, and certainly to the gruesome craniometry, which we'll talk about in a little bit. By the 1930s, though, in countries where childbirth had been medicalized, the symphysiotomy was phased out in favor of the safer C-section, except in Ireland. While surgical solutions to difficult childbirths increased in American and European obstetrics throughout the 20th century, generally, it was only in Ireland that the use of symphysiotomy increased. Why, for the love of God, why, you ask? Let's dig in. I'm Ariel Earls. I'm Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk. 
And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Hey, you. Yes, you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And thank you to our amazing Patreon supporters, Lauren, Edward, Denise, Maddie, Maggie, Danielle, Lisa, Agnes, Iris, Maria, Colin, Susan, Peggy, and Jessica. Thank you for choosing us to patronize. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Thank you for choosing us to patronize. We are nothing without you. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com backslash dig podcast to learn more. Three years after she married, Dolores got pregnant. It was a welcome enough pregnancy, and like thousands of Irish women just like her, she relied on the medical model of childbirth when it was time. She said, quote, it was 1961. I suggested going to the Rotunda, the Protestant hospital in Dublin myself. I was a public patient. One Friday morning, I got pains. My husband came into hospital with me. I was in an ordinary bed for two days. Nothing was happening. Saturday and Sunday, I had the odd pain. No more. They weren't strong. I was due the next day. Then they got anxious. On Sunday night, they told me I'd be going down the next morning. They brought me for a shower. On Monday, they brought me down to the labor ward. Then they brought me to the operating theater, and I thought I was going to have the baby. I was put out, nearly suffocated with what they gave me. It was sickening. When I woke up, I asked the nurse, is the baby all right? You didn't have it yet, the nurse said. You've had your pelvis broken. Shocked I was. The baby will be born soon, she said. Dolores was one of hundreds, possibly thousands, of Irish survivors of symphysiotomy and pubiotomies. This procedure, regularly described as barbaric, was a staple of Irish obstetrics in the 20th century. As suggested by Dolores' testimony, the choice to employ symphysiotomy was rarely one made by laboring women. Instead, Catholic doctors in Ireland elected to perform the surgeries to quote-unquote aid in the vaginal birth of infants, often without consulting the patients. Scholars Cara DeLay and Beth Sundstrom argue that Irish doctors' use of symphysiotomy in the 20th century constituted obstetric violence, or what C.H. Vacaflower defines as, quote, the violence exercised by health personnel on the body and reproductive processes of pregnant women, as expressed through dehumanizing treatment, medicalization abuse, and the conversion of natural processes of reproduction into pathological ones, end quote. Feminist scholars have long argued that the medicalization of childbirth has had an overall negative impact on reproduction and maternal health, with medical personnel divesting pregnant people of their agency and authority in the birthing process. In the case of symphysiotomy in Ireland from mid-century to the 1990s, the increased authority of doctors coupled with the oppressive Catholic hierarchy's intervention in health care created a perfect storm in which an unknown but significant number of Irish women had their pubic symphysis sliced without their knowledge or consent. 
Symphysiotomies, even when done well, can still lead to a lifetime of pain, incontinence, vaginal fistulas, and joint problems. For over five decades, doctors in Ireland performed symphysiotomies and pubiotomies without the consent or knowledge of their patients. You can probably imagine the degree of awfulness, but we'll explain for you anyway. The first successful symphysiotomy was recorded in Paris in 1777. According to DeLay, symphysiotomies never reached a point of being widespread in the European or American obstetric communities because of the long-term health problems that they caused. Even in the 20th century, when surgical solutions to difficult births have become perhaps overused, symphysiotomies were generally not the go-to procedure. And Marissa's doing a whole episode on C-sections in history, so we won't get too deep into that. But of the surgical solutions for difficult births, C-sections have been around the longest, and in most of the world, they are the primary mode of surgical extraction. Before modern sterilization techniques, however, all surgical options that involve creating incisions into patients were obviously dangerous, leaving patients susceptible to sepsis and infection. For most of the 18th and into the 19th century, surgical solutions were not common and often were the last resort. When asked to intervene, physicians preferred craniotomy, in which the fetus's cranium would be pierced, contents scrambled and removed, skull crushed, and body extracted. Most physicians in the 18th and 19th century saw this as a necessary, if unfortunate, procedure to save the mother, even when the fetus was living at the time of the failed birth. An infant that was unable to pass through the vaginal canal naturally would die in utero anyway and then kill the mother. As Marissa will undoubtedly discuss in her episode, historically the C-section was used to extract fetuses from already deceased mothers. That kind of reputation left husbands and wives resistant to consenting to any kind of surgical intervention in the birthing room. According to Judith Walter Levitt and Nadia Filippini, throughout the early modern period and into the 19th century, physicians in the U.S. and Europe tended to understand the fetus as part of the woman's body until she successfully birthed it and it survived on its own. It was more important to save the life of the woman or, quote-unquote, sacrifice the fruit for the tree. She was already a contributing member of society, probably already had children at home to care for or, or would be able to try again. But this was not a universally accepted premise. As one might expect, there were a range of perspectives on the issue. Some opposed, some physicians opposed craniotomies entirely, preferring to put the mother at risk with a C-section or symphysiotomy if it meant the chance for a live birth. The ethical considerations were debated widely and hotly well into the 20th century. When surgical interventions were made safer, however, more and more physicians leaned toward making the choice that might preserve both mother and child. But at the same time that these surgical interventions were being perfected, husbands, wives, midwives, and the various other women who'd attended a birth had a lot more to say in what happened during a birth. In Europe and the U.S., almost all births took place in women's homes well into the 1920s, where they were the primary decision makers. According to Judith Walzer Levitt, physicians were one of many people present at a birth and usually not even required at a birth. If present, they would not intervene unless specifically asked to do so. 
They were not the quote-unquote authority in the room, but one of a collective of knowledgeable individuals who might offer advice. That power balance wouldn't shift in any significant ways until the late 19th, early 20th centuries. In Europe, the 18th century professionalization of midwifery and the rise of quote-unquote man midwives gradually shifted obstetric authority from women in their homes to doctors in their hospitals. In continental Europe, the 18th century was a key turning point in the medicalization of childbirth. Though women maintained control over the realm of pregnancy in the birthing room well into the 19th century, starting in the 18th century, European states began intervening and regulating medicine and public health works more closely. As historian Nadia Filippini has shown, with the Enlightenment and scientific revolution of the 17th centuries, 18th century states were increasingly concerned about public health and the body politic. Addressing abysmal maternal and infant mortality rates, the governments in most European countries established formal midwifery schools to try and regulate and standardize midwifery practices. According to Filippini, in Italy, between 1757 and 1779, 13 midwifery schools were open and similar institutions were created in Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Spain in the 1770s. Spain was one of the later states to establish a school with one in Barcelona in 1795. Rather than improving the efficacy of midwives and thereby saving the lives of mothers and infants, these schools tended to hamstring the practitioners. Laws forbade midwives from using instruments like forceps or providing oral medicines to dull birthing pains and were required to call on male physicians or doctors to administer drugs or to deal with difficult pregnancies that might require surgical intervention. The licensure requirements also ultimately usurped women's authority in the realm of childbirth. Most women couldn't afford or weren't permitted to spend months or years training in one of the midwifery schools. Many midwives continued practicing unlicensed and passing down their traditions through apprenticeships, as had been done before. But others bent to the will of the state, if only to hold on to this female realm of power. It was necessary to obey the state in order to keep the power of childbirth out of the hands of men. As Teresa Ployant wrote in 1797, quote, They are already indifferently abandoning mothers in the hands of men in France and England and threatening the same in the rest of Europe. Let us then be quick to stem this fatal turn of events and through tireless study make the public realize that we are the ones that can bring childbirth to a happy outcome and at the same time save women's modesty, end quote. As Ployant suggested, the medicalization of childbirth in England rapidly outpaced that on the continent. Regulation enforced through the trial and imprisonment of midwives quickly relegated women to the periphery of childbirth in the UK. In the 17th and 18th centuries, English midwives, some of whom were literate, knowledgeable, and extensively trained in their fields, resisted this power shift to no avail. Sarah Stone, a midwife who practiced in the mid-18th century, balked at the increasing number of medical interventions in childbirth. 
In her 1737 midwifery treatise, she insisted that, quote, more women and children have died by the hands of such professors than by the greatest imbecility and ignorance of some woman midwives who never went through or heard of a course of anatomy. According to historian Jeanette C. Allity, quote, during the 154 years between the first publication of Sharp's The Midwives book and the writing of Stevens' Domestic Midwife, men midwives gained increasing authority in the field of midwifery practice, whereas traditional midwives continued to carry on practicing. The midwife authors believe that the incidence of severely obstructed labor was relatively rare and that forceps and instruments were being used indiscriminately by men midwives who generally overstated the need for medical intervention. As we already know, however, the use of forceps was just the beginning. By gradually chipping away at the authority of European midwives, governments and physicians, who were all men, of course, shifted reproduction from the home to the hospital. It was dangerous and challenging to perform interventionist surgeries of any kind in the homes of patients. This was a hard sell, particularly among the middle and upper classes. Uh, these women preferred to receive treatment in their homes, surrounded by familiar faces and people to help care for them. Hospitals were for the poor and indigent. It took decades for the medical establishment to market itself as a welcoming environment for patients. By 1920, when germ theory and improved sanitation meant that surgical interventions were more likely to result in the survival of both infant and mother, doctors were able to argue that a woman who might have a difficult birth should start her labor process in a hospital. Over time, the qualifications for what might be classified as a difficult birth expanded, and more and more women were pressured by their health care providers, generally physicians, um, as midwives were pushed out of the market by regulation, to give birth in hospitals. So now, as of 2010, less than 1% of European births were at home. And of course, in hospitals, doctors are the authorities. Exactly. And, and that authority has traditionally been exercised with impunity. We needn't focus on symphysiotomy to find examples of doctors who make decisions for patients based on what they, the physician, thinks is best. Uh, cons consent was not an implicit or explicit component of medical care in the 19th or early 20th centuries. Among other marginalized groups who've been subjected to the whims of quote-unquote professional male medicine, women have been ignored, undermined, and refused the right to make choices for their own bodies in the United States and Europe for well over a century. Without even touching the issues of family limitation, access to birth control, access to safe abortions, and these other hot-button issues, studies have shown that women struggle to get doctors to believe when they are, are in pain or when something feels off or not right within their bodies. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. <laughs> it's a whole thing. <laughs> And this can, of course, be said for black people in the United States, immigrants, prisoners, you know, the list goes on and on. Medical experimentation, non-consensual treatment, and all kinds of unethical behavior are not just historical realities of the medical profession. They were essential to the development of modern professional medicine. As giving birth shifted from the home to the hospital, surgical procedures were no longer decisions made with women and with multiple parties weighing in. 
From the 1920s on, doctors made snap decisions, including quote-unquote emergency C-sections, or in the Irish case, symphysiotomy, or occasionally pubiotomy. And this is an ongoing issue. I actually just finished teaching a reproductive ethics course for Albany Medical College, where we talk about patients' rights and provider rights and responsibilities and how those rights and responsibilities clash, especially in reproductive health. Obviously, there are Catholic, Muslim, Anglican, Lutheran, Sikh, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, Baptist doctors, and there are frequently doctors from backgrounds that prohibit things like birth control or abortion who still today make the choice to deny services related to family limitation to their patients. And as my students, who are themselves, many of them, in, in, the, in the medical field and find themselves leaning towards sympathizing with the medical professionals, um, sort of grapple with these issues. Individual codes of ethics are necessarily informed by our socialization into spiritual, moral, ethical communities. We don't want to say that Catholics who would refuse to perform abortion should not go into a medical career because that would be discriminatory. But we still want to challenge the notion that the same doctor has the right on their own moral or ethical grounds to deny a patient a procedure that they have every legal right to. So it's just a really tricky conversation. As Judith Levitt notes, physicians in the 19th century, like today, had a range of perspectives on the issues of things like craniotomies, three C-sections, and symphysiotomy. Among Catholic doctors in particular, craniotomy was just outright rejected. Doctors and religious hierarchy officials privileged the unborn and quote-unquote innocent or sinless fetus over the mother. Levitt describes two scenarios in which Catholic priests attempted to interfere with reproductive medical decisions. And we're just going to read these straight from Levitt's original text. Um, so I apologize now for the long block quotes, but she tells the stories really well. All right. So according to Levitt, quote, in 1885, a pregnant Catholic woman known to have a narrow pelvis went into labor in the company of her husband, her clergyman, and her physician. The physician soon realized that a successful vaginal delivery was impossible. Before he could recommend any course of action, however, the priest spoke in favor of a cesarean section and rejected the alternative of a craniotomy. So the parturient and her husband strongly desired that a craniotomy should be performed, despite the inevitable mortality of the fetus, in order to save the woman's life. The physician, Dr. Green of Dorchester, Massachusetts, himself uneasy with the alternatives, was reluctant to proceed given the divided opinion. He consulted with a colleague who specialized in abdominal surgery and the noted surgeon, quote, for good medical reasons, declined to operate, recommending also that a craniotomy be undertaken. Green finally performed a craniotomy and the woman recovered. However, the physician felt uncomfortable with his participation in the destruction of a live fetus and said that he was, quote, uh, not sure that he should proceed in like manner again under precisely similar circumstances, end quote. In another uh, case, um, Levitt writes, quote, when in 1901, Dr. Joseph DeLee of Chicago faced a similar situation, the outcome for the paturient was quite different. He was called to attend a woman with a pelvis deformed by childhood rickets who had been in labor for 60 hours. 
He advised against a cesarean section because the duration of her labor at this point made the procedure a threat to her life. However, the priest in attendance insisted on a cesarean section, overruling the woman's initial preference for a craniotomy. With priest and parturient ultimately then in agreement, Dali, feeling he had no other choice, performed the cesarean section. The woman subsequently died without rallying from the operation. Dali concluded, quote, This case made a strong impression on my mind, for I am certain craniotomy would have saved the patient, end quote. In Protestant-dominated countries, with the secularization of society and of public services, like hospitals, schools, and other organizations that were traditionally run by religious organizations in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Catholic Church attempted to reassert its daily authority by issuing decrees and opinions on issues of state, medicine, and the like. And you may be wondering, why the fuck was there a priest present at these births? Yeah, I was wondering, actually. Yeah, But remember <laughs> that up until the 19th century, births and homes were like public affairs in the U.S. and Europe. So husbands would go around town and gather up all the neighbors. The women would assist the midwife in the birth and the husbands would like smoke and drink and wait outside. A priest would likely be on hand in the event that the mother or infant died and needed their last rites. So... Um, In 1885 and 1901, those two cases, even if those patients had submitted themselves to hospital births, it is likely that there would still have been quite a few people present for the birth because, you know, old habits die hard. Childhood didn't become the sort of isolated, highly medicalized affair it is today until the 1940s and 50s. Consequently, the priests had opinions, hmm, surprising, on how one should or should not proceed in the surgical solution to difficult births. Those opinions shaped by official Catholic hierarchical statements about health care and especially reproductive health care were generally isolated interferences of individual priests or maybe the occasional Catholic doctor who put their religious beliefs before the standardized best practices of the time. The cases that Levitt describes in the United States were not widespread even if they were still undue influence by the priest. And by the 1920s and 30s, when C-sections were fairly safe, the surgical solutions to difficult births no longer revolved around questions of save one or the other. C-sections in particular were safe enough so as to ensure the survival of both. But that's not how we get to Dolores's story. Because in Ireland, the priests weren't just the decision makers in the birthing rooms. They dominated public life, even influenced state policy. From early in the 20th century, as synthetic methods of birth control became more widely available in Europe and the U.S., the Catholic Church took a hard and fast stance on all unnatural forms of contraception, namely that it did not serve God's plan and that to prevent procreation in any way was a terrible sin. The forms of birth control approved by the Catholic Church throughout the 20th century were either the rhythm method, in which women were supposed to track their menstrual cycle to figure out when they probably wouldn't get pregnant, or natural family planning, which is essentially the same thing, but instead of guessing, women tracked the mucous membrane on their cervix, which is, I'm sure, not challenging to do at all. (laughs) 
For the first half of the 20th century, chemical and latex forms of birth control were illegal and policed pretty heavily by governments in the United States and Europe. And you can check out my episode on Comstock, Anthony Comstock, for the U.S. situation. But because of the advocacy and protest work of groups in the 1920s and 30s, like the American National Birth Control League, the available forms of birth control, like the cervical cap, were legalized and made available, at first through prescriptions to married couples and later more widely. By the 1960s, there were effective and reliable chemical forms of birth control as well. In all cases, the U.S. and European states resisted. Giving women such precise control over their own bodies was undoubtedly frightening to the men in power. But while most European states, including the Soviet Union, granted women some level of control over their reproduction, Ireland stayed firmly in control of the bodies of their women. Ireland gained its independence from the United Kingdom in 1922. The independence movement notably included women who fought on the front lines of the war for independence and a handful of women who were elected into the first Dáil or Irish Parliament. But their investment in greater Irish nationalist goals ultimately subsumed whatever feminist intentions they had when getting involved in the fight. In the first few years of independence, the Irish police drove sex workers underground, harassing streetwalkers extrajudiciously until they dared not ply their wares openly. As Maria Luddy noted, well into the 1990s, Irish citizens insisted that there was no prostitution in Ireland that it had left with the British deoccupation in 1922. That's kind of hilarious. So hilarious. Um, sorry. <laughs> hilarious is not the best word, right? Um Unmarried women who got pregnant were sequestered away in mother and baby homes, usually run by Catholic women religious. And if they didn't have any male support network to speak for them, their babies were seized and adopted out, often to American families. All kinds of women and teen girls, those suspected of having had premarital sexual contact or those deemed too, quote unquote, unruly or problematic, were held captive in the Magdalene laundries, forced to work for free for the Sisters of Mercy who ran those institutions, belittled, beaten and reminded again and again of their worthlessness. Some escaped. Too many did not. The new Irish state passed censorship laws to rival those of Anthony Comstock. It wasn't just newspaper advertisements and the sale of birth control that was forbidden. Any and all books, movies, poems, music, and art that even hinted at ways that women might practice family limitation were banned by the Evil Literature Committee. The leadership of the Catholic Church in Ireland had their hands in all major decisions, and the majority of hospitals and schools continued to be run by the church. With few exceptions, Irish women were at the mercy of the Catholic Church, and its practices were far from merciful. So I'll just say that um, according to Comstock laws, all of that stuff was also illegal in the United States, mm -hmm. any kind of books or art or anything like that. But right. of course, we're not talking about is much of a crackdown in the United States as there was in Ireland. Right. And he was, was he, he was more concerned with like boobies, anything sexually suggestive whatsoever. Yeah. So there's like a famous case of like a 
a, a ballerina, like her her tutu. The, right. the the way the tool was was folded suggested uh, genitalia, which right. it was tool. So anyway. so so in the case of Ireland, right? Like there's all that stuff, like censor censoring the obscene, but also if a book had one line about oh she lost the baby all of a sudden, then mm. it was banned. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. No, I'm I'm not saying that that the U.S. No, was no, no. near near yeah. Ireland, but yeah. All right. So even when the C-section was deemed safe, it was general knowledge in the medical community that after three C-sections, it was best practice to sterilize a woman to prevent future pregnancies. In Ireland, where any kind of contraceptive was either illegal or forbidden, even when medically necessary, Irish doctors elected to employ symphysiotomies instead of C-sections with alarming regularity. They did so with the same non-consensuality that doctors in the Americas and the rest of Europe did with C-sections, which also have a long history of being performed unnecessarily and without patient consent. Generally, however, C-sections were preferred because of their relatively short recovery time and the minimal long-term damage to the recipient. Symphysiotomies, on the other hand, allowed women to keep having babies endlessly and with an average of seven children per woman in the period of 1942 to 1992, that is exactly what Irish Catholic doctors achieved with their practices. The experiences that survivors of symphysiotomy and pubiotomies described ranged from masochistic doctors who performed the procedures out of cruelty to naive first-time mothers who signed waivers without being informed what they were agreeing to. Some were injected with local anesthetic or given gas to knock them out. Some were lucid through the procedure. According to a survivor known as Cora, the nurses told her, quote, don't worry because you're going to have a cesarean. They said it's a little cut, but it won't be noticeable because it's on the bikini line. They said Dr. Sheehan will do you. The nurse held my hand and told me there was nothing to worry about. They got me to sign a piece of paper and one of them held my hand up while I was doing it. He, Dr. Sheehan, comes in with a black case. In his hand, there was a needle like one you would use for a cow with a plunger full of white stuff, and he put that into my leg near the top on the inside. You'll be all right now, he said. It's to stop the pain so you won't feel it. I seen him go and take out a proper hacksaw, like a wood saw, the same thing as for wood, a half circle with a straight blade and a handle. It was out of this world, the torture. The blood shot up to the ceiling, up onto his glasses, all over the nurse's. I'll get you in the next world, I thought. Then he goes to the table and gets something like a solder iron and puts it on me and stopped the bleeding. It was death. I knew I was being killed. There was blood coming out of me. Oh, my God. Y'all can't see my face. But as she's reading this, I'm like, holy crap. That's yeah. that's terrifying. Horrifying. Not a C-section, by the way. No. That was a, that was a pubiotomy. Yes. So this feeling of being powerless, of having decisions made for them, is universal among the survivors of symphysiotomy who testified in the human rights court case against Ireland. Uh, a woman we'll call Vera describes being, quote, tied up, having no control. Kathleen recalls, quote, they didn't tell me what they were doing. But Hannah put it most clearly, quote, I'd no idea what a symphysiotomy was. 
The short-term effects were long hospital stays, immense pain, infection, and slow healing. Eileen said, Over a month, my friend said I was in a hospital, but I don't remember. Describing her recovery period after receiving an unexpected pubiotomy, which is, again, like symphysiotomy, but instead of snipping the pubis cartilage, doctors break the pelvis bone to widen the birth canal. Kathleen discussed what life was like after she got home. At home, the wound was discharging. There was a terrible smell. I dosed it with dead all. There was no nurse to look after me. I remember it was the winter. The pain in my back was so bad, it would be a fine thing to be dead, I thought. The doctor came in, turned the key in the front door like they did then. My God, my love, I'm so sorry, he said. You've suffered so much. It didn't work out for us. Things didn't go right for, for you. It never crossed my mind that that would be done to you. Take little strolls, little ones. I took a stroll downtown, but I couldn't keep going. I got locked in. I couldn't move. It was the soreness of the bones. A woman on the other side of the road asked me to come over and have a cup of tea, but I couldn't cross the road. They thought I was going to die. I was so white. There was no binding of the pelvis. No, I was shuffling for six months. Once I went up the stairs, but I couldn't keep going and I couldn't come down. So I was jammed in the middle, frozen to death. My husband came home to find me shaking. Good God. The long-term effects of symphysiotomies and pubiotomies took an immense toll on their survivors. Nula, quote, had pain for nine years. Eileen remembered, quote, I wasn't even walking by the time I had my second in 64. I'll never forget the pain of trying to conceive. And true to form, even though they continued to suffer from the long-term effects of the surgeries, many women had no idea what had happened to them until many years later. When Cora sought help from her GP as a much older adult, uh, she said, quote, I was telling my doctor that she wouldn't and she wouldn't believe me. She thought I was a clinical nuisance until you bring me the medical records, she said. Is it very painful? My son asked. For me, it was, I said. I have to have a cesarean section. I was cut with a saw. But you don't do it with a saw, he said. Then he found out. It all came together. We got the records and brought them to the doctor. She shook hands with me. She knows I am in pain now. She sent me for counseling. In all the cases of symphysiotomies and the rare pubiotomies, women like Kathleen and Dolores, whose names were all all anonymized by the group Survivors of Symphysiotomy Ireland for the report they put together for the Human Rights Court. Um, They all described their lack of control, agency, and choice in the implementation of the procedure. The Catholic ethos saturated the reproductive health field in Ireland for the majority of the 20th century. And of course, this needn't have been the case. There were no laws that prohibited C-sections in Ireland. Every symphysiotomy was a choice that a doctor made in order to perpetuate a woman's potential fertility, to ensure that no matter what she wanted for her body and reproductivity, she could get pregnant if she had sex. As we've discussed previously on this show, Ireland's independence was, by 1919, deeply entwined with Catholicism. Catholicism became an ethnic marker of difference between the Irish and their English overlords. But it was more than that. The Irish Catholic ethos of sexual purity and morality were written into the very fabric and constitution of the independent Irish state. 
1937 Constitution explicitly laid out an Irish woman's place in the home as a mother, with the virgin mother as the model Irish citizen and all the horrible ironies laden there within, there was an assumption that, quote, good Irish women could marry and just have babies until their bodies stopped being able to have babies. When one Dr. Day Valera met with Hannah, he told her, quote, I normally do a cesarean section, de Valera said, but because you are such a good Catholic, I'll do a symphysiotomy. You're a Catholic family. You'd be expected to have at least 10. If you have a cesarean, you can only have three. And as a Catholic, you need to go through the pains of childbirth. If you had a cesarean, you wouldn't. The baby is as big as yourself. Why do small women marry big men? I'll have to stretch your hips and straighten your pelvis. God. Obviously, this is absurd, but also representative of how women were treated, what was expected of them, and how the cycle of childbirth was used to keep them complacent, owned, and powerless in Irish society. And as DeLay and Sundstrom argue, this is why we must consider the Irish reproductive health care system as characterized by obstetric violence. From the inception of the Irish Free State until very, very recently, it was only in 2017 that Ireland voted by referendum to decriminalize abortion, and in 2018, the Health Act made abortion legal within 12 weeks of conception, which was, you know, huge, even yeah. though it's a tiny baby step. Yeah. Before that, women, immigrant women in particular, died because Catholic doctors and hospitals refused to provide abortion services including therapeutic ones. Despite being codified in the Irish Constitution, it turns out that Irish mothers were not as valued as one might think. Yeah. Interestingly, though, they are no longer the mainstay of Irish surgical solutions to obstructive labor. Symphysiotomies have not disappeared. Doctors in countries with lower GDPs and less access to resources, including medical supplies, have turned to symphysiotomies as hopeful solutions to high infant and maternal mortality rates. Public health experts argue that in resource-poor regions, symphysiotomies can literally be life-saving, as they were in the 19th century before the standardization of C-sections. Most recommended that women undergo the operation early, because when allowed to heal adequately, the symphysiotomy and pubiotomy permanently alter the birth canal and can allow people to give birth in more traditional settings, at home or in birth clinics. The reduction in a likelihood of an obstructed labor improves the chances of mother and infant survival significantly. For example, in the last 10 years, Nigerian reproductive health advocates have proposed a revival of the symphysiotomy, since 98% of maternal deaths occur in countries that are resource poor. It seems like a reasonable solution? Mm. Of course, in a setting where a symphysiotomy is an informed choice made by a pregnant person, that's an entirely different horse. The instances that Cara DeLay uncovered in her research on Ireland and the testimonies collected by the survivors of Symphysiotomy Ireland for their various lawsuits against the Irish state are obviously describing coercive, non-consensual procedures, which left lasting psychological and physiological damage on the survivors. Yeah. So for some survivors, there have been some settlements made with the Irish government. 
Without proof of surgery, and conveniently, many of these women's symphysiotomies were not recorded in hospital records, despite the clear post-op scars and scar tissues, claimants can receive up to 50,000 euros, but are forced to waive their right to pursue legal action in court. For those who had proof of the non-consensual surgery, they've received up to 450,000 euros in hospital damages. The SOS Ireland group continues to advocate on behalf of those subjected unwillingly and unknowingly to these procedures. Money, of course, won't erase the decades of pain, trauma, and the scars, but like the many scandals instigated by Irish Catholicism, they're being aired out in the 21st century and changing the country, its reproductive health services, and its people for the better. So to wrap this up, I've never had a baby before, nor will I, which most of you probably already know. I hope. Um, so I could have gone my whole life happily not knowing about symphysiotomies. That would have been a nice thing. But in 2016, Cara DeLay wrote an essay for Nursing Clio, where I'm the layout editor, about symphysiotomies in Ireland. Her original essay for Nursing Clio and then the longer academic essay that she published last year are the main secondary sources for this episode. Um, there's not actually a lot written on this. Uh, it's a pretty niche yeah. uh, situation. And, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done in Ireland and reproductive health more generally in history. Um, but as I read it to prep for image curation back in 2016, um, it was like a car wreck. I, it was horrible. All I wanted to do was look away, but I couldn't. I couldn't stop reading, right? Mm -hmm. It's so disturbing. And actually, if I remember correctly, she wrote the essay for us because our Sarah, Sarah Hanley Cousins, who was also an editor then, and she's executive editor of Nursing Cleo now, so go girl, came across the term in one of Kara's other Nursing Cleo essays and asked her to write an entire post um, on symphysiotomies. Um, Kara obliged, and it's been haunting my nightmares ever since. And now you can join me in being haunted <sighs> for the rest of your lives. Um, and of course, as a scholar of gender and sexuality in Ireland, I'm not actually surprised by any of all this. Uh, the Catholic nationalist ethos and its iron fist ruling of sex, sexuality, women's bodies, etc., is what I've been researching and writing on for the decade. But, you know, just when you think things couldn't have been any worse. <sighs> yeah. So had, had you have had you heard of symphysiotomy? No, before? I had it. I I had no. I had not. No, it's funny because now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like I've heard about uh so I know that when a woman is pregnant like her cartilage softens anyway, like the pregnancy hormones kind of, you know, make you all loosey-goosey in the pelvis anyway so that it can kind of stretch and 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 go through that. Um and like I feel like I've heard of this but not really. Like I've never heard of it actually being like sawed uh, and cut. Um, and I, that description that you gave was just horrendous. I mean, again, like y'all can't see my face, but as April was reading that, I was just making these horrible faces because, oh, my God, that's just nightmarish. Right. Yeah. And that was the pubiotomies. The actual symphysiotomy is done by inserting one hand into the vagina and then also i think either on the outside or the inside using a scalpel to like slice through the cartilage mm -hmm. until it splits yeah and that so that's 
the like nicer version and the bone saw is for the pubiotomies where they're actually sawing through bone <sighs> yeah sawing through bone yeah i mean it's 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 torturous it's it's i mean this is like straight like handmaid's tale bullshit you know it's yeah. fucking yeah just nightmarish so yeah and kara's essay for nursing cleo is a quote from one of the survivors is and then the torture began. Yeah. I um, yeah. I have to go read that article now. <laughs> yeah. It's so good and so, but I'll, ugh, I just, yeah, I, I, I like try to forget about it and then I'll forget about it and then I'll be like, oh, that article ugh. that Kara wrote for us. Yeah. No, that's awesome. <laughs> that's why. That's, so yeah. Assigned it all my classes so that they can suffer with me. And now all of our listeners are suffering with us too. Yes. So. Thank you for sharing this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, thanks. But thanks. Now, I do have a question um, because yeah. you say that symphysiotomy is is being kind of postulated or you know, proposed for uh, resource poor countries. So I guess my fear is that it just turns into the same kind of bullshit. Like, you know, it's an option that doctors can use, but that women are informed of the uh, horrible repercussions that could happen after they you know, quote unquote, agree to such a invasive procedure. Yeah, I think so. I think that the way modern doctors like our, our contemporary doctors right now are trying to spin it is that you would have you would have the symphysiotomy perhaps even before you get pregnant, because, if you know, you, when you v- visit the gynecologist and they're like, oh, you have a really narrow birth canal. Mm-hmm. This might not go well for you or when the baby is getting too big before you go into labor there's you know so there's a chance that you can right but i mean isn't one of the issues yeah. of infant maternal death is that there's very little prenatal care in the first place so i see so much of this happening you know on the birthing table right yeah like again i mean i'm kind of talking out of my ass because i don't i don't know this is again news to me but it seems um some pretty scary stuff to be yeah proposing i think it's yeah it seems very like a hail mary um right not a long-term solution right um it 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 seems also to be hearkening back and this is you know true in the united states too where we're having our like back to the home birth or birth clinic sort of movement right that's a very popular thing among Mm -hmm. white middle-aged women um and but sometimes surgical intervention is just necessary right you know if your infant's head is too big and it cannot pass through your vaginal birth canal then then you have to have intervention so um i don't know if having the symphysiotomy in advance or having it be part of this surgical intervention program is sort of trying to return women to having those home births because once you have that expanded pelvis then you don't have to worry about those complications as much when you're having kids in the future maybe the first time you have it as an emergency but then all those irish women could have potentially then had their subsequent 11 births at home as long as they didn't need additional surgical intervention. But of course, because they were done without um, consent or knowledge or, or given proper instructions for care afterwards, then they had continuous 
problems in their with their reproductive health and their general health. health. Yeah. 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 General. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the women that you mentioned, she said even conception, i.e. sex was painful. Right. So if you want women to be having more babies, like don't make it hurt to have more babies. Right. Right. And we're talking about really patriarchal societies. Right. This is true of where there's a continued social expectation that if a husband wants sex he gets it yeah yeah. women don't get to say no right marital rape wasn't a thing in ireland until 1995 um so i could see this you know just being if if the obsession is with being able to make sure that women can continue to reproduce and that's the reason that it's a solution then that's a terrible reason for that to be a solution yeah this Um, doesn't sound very much of a solution at all to me no (sighs) yeah i don't know what is a solution because obviously maternal and infant mortality is a really huge problem in a lot of these resource poor countries right but i don't think that small birth canals are the problem there no no (laughs) certainly not right that's just one of many different issues um yeah yeah so it's well, thanks for like, haunting my yeah. nightmares with this. Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> so that's it for us listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at dig underscore history. If you're looking to bedazzle yourself in some epic dig swag, visit our T Public store. Find the link to our swag store as well as transcripts and bibliographies for all of our episodes at digpodcast.org. Yeah, that's it. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. And reproductivity. Anonymized. 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 Thank you. Hot butt shit. Those opinions shaped by official Catholic hier- hierarchical. Hier- hierarchical. Were generally. Um, were genuinely. Gen- were generally. <laughs> motherfucker. Deeply Ooh. entwined. Sorry. Add that. I didn't see what you added. Movement. Um, the 1937. What? Constitution. What is SOS Island? That's the survivors of Symphysiotomy. Oh, okay. Oh my god, this sounds bonkers. Yeah. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.